So last week we started a new series called Changed People, Change People, right? Changed People, Change People. We talk about wanting to make a difference in the world. We talk about changing the world. We talk about changing our world. But we're only going to do that if we, first of all, have been changed. And so last week, you may remember, if you were here, if you're watching online, that we spoke about a lady who was on the outside, but Jesus loved her onto the inside, and she went back to those who'd put her on the outside, who were now on the outside, and said, we want you to come to the inside and know Jesus. And because she was a changed person, she changed people. What I want to do today and over the next few weeks is talk about specifically how we become changed people who change people. It's all fine and dandy that we come to church and we sing our songs and we listen to our scriptures and we pray our prayers, but the rubber hits the road in Christianity when we can see and know that the love that God has deposited in us is flowing through us and changing the lives of people who are hurting, who are lost, who are far from God. How does that happen? If you have your Bible with you, I want to introduce you to another changed person who changes people. And her story is found in Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. If you want to open another tab on your computer, if you want to look it up on your phone, if you're in the app, you'll see the notes and the scripture right there. This lady is a prostitute. Then, as today, people who sell themselves in that way are considered pushed aside to the margins of society. And so she was hurt and she was lost and she was separated. But she hears about this guy called Jesus who changes her with a radical love. And as she is changed, she radically lives a life that provides an illustration of what Jesus looks like. And that illustration changes others. First of all, it's not listed in this story, but I want to talk about her change story. One of the things that Christian theologians and scholars do and like to do and have fun doing is reading the scriptures differently than we do. There's a process called the harmony of the gospels where lots of scholars over many years have taken the four gospels and we read them as a story and they've put them in chronological order, right? The, the, the way we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John isn't chronological. It, it works as a story. It conveys what we need to hear from it, but it's not written in a chronological way. In order to find out this lady's change, we need to look at the Gospels in a chronological way. So in the harmony of the Gospels, right, 
This story just happens after Jesus has uttered these words in Matthew. Come to me, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. So in the harmony of the Gospels, this story happens after that invitation. Does that make sense? And so her change story happens when she hears Jesus say, come to me. And as a prostitute, as someone who was living a crazy life that was full of sin because of brokenness and because of, of, of some sick, strange men, she had always been told, go away. But Jesus says to those whom the world says, go away, come to me. She started to change when she heard a man who looked at her differently and loved her differently than she'd ever been before. Not say to her, go away, but come to me. Come to me, all you who are burdened. There can be no doubt that this was a lady who carried many burdens. Honestly, if she hadn't been burdened and broken by the world, she probably wouldn't have got into the profession she did. But as she stepped into this profession more and more, her sin and her shame and her self-worth became more and less. Her shame increased and her self-worth decreased. Each time she went about her practice, her burdens got heavier. Jesus says, come to me, you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. And for this lady, this rest must have been so attractive because she was always hiding and she was always running. And she was always doing something. And even in her moments of quiet, she was creating noise because she probably didn't want to hear what the still small voice was saying her. We don't know the full depth of her story. But I imagine that the invitation to her from Jesus, come to me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest was incredibly attractive to her. My guess is it was that invitation from Jesus that changed her. She thought, there's a different way. Here's someone who's saying, come, when the rest of the world is saying, get away from me. Here's someone saying they want to help me. They want to love me in a deeper, better, stronger, holier way than most of the men that I'm with. Come to me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. And the lady says, I'm in. I'm in. Honestly, that invitation of Jesus makes so much sense for us today, right? We may not be prostituting ourselves in the way that she was, 
There are ways that people are saying to us, get away from me and it hurts. There are burdens that we are carrying that are weighing us down. There is rest that we need, but we're not getting. So when Jesus says, come to me, all you are burdened and I will give you rest. We're like, I'm in, I need some of that. And when we come to Jesus and when we lay our burdens before him and when he gives us that rest, not just a nap, but that rest inside of our soul, man, we're changed. The invitation is still out there today from Jesus to all of us, to me, to you. Come to me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. That was her change story. Didn't happen out there, it happened in here. But as she responds to the change in her heart, then people out here are going to see what's going on. That's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 7. Then one of the Pharisees, we read later, a guy called Simon, invited Jesus to eat with him. That was a nice thing to do. Simon the Pharisee may have been trying to trap Jesus, maybe, who knows. But the reality is, he's just probably trying to check him out. Who is this guy? He's coming to our space. He's talking to our people. He's saying things that seem so countercultural to us, even though they make some kind of sense to us. And he says, I want to get to know him. And the best way to get to know him is over a dinner, over a meal. Now, the meals in these days, it wasn't like you said, okay, let's go to the Olive Garden or something like that. It wasn't even, let's go to my home. It was like, let's go to the courtyard, a very public place, and we can eat and talk. But because they were eating and talking in a very public place, it was very easy for the public to see what was going on and to overhear what was happening. So Jesus shows up at the house with this big communal courtyard behind it. And we read that he reclined at the table. I think that word reclined is so important. There are two things that are happening here. First of all, Jesus is positioning himself in a way that caused him to recline. But I think also he's reclining in his posture as well, in his demeanor. Now, the way he reclined positionally, because the tables were very low, is he would put his left arm on the table, and he would basically lie down with his feet sticking out. And everybody would be doing the same. That was the, 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 the position that people reclined in. And it said, hey, I'm coming to the table. I, I want to talk. I want to participate in this community. But also, I believe that Jesus' posture was reclined. That he wasn't flustered by all the hustle and bustle around. He, he wasn't concerned about whatever kind of trap the Pharisees may create for him. As Jesus walked into this courtyard, there was some etiquette that was supposed to take place. He was supposed to be greeted with a kiss. His feet were supposed to be washed. And he was supposed to anoint him with a little bit of, of, of perfume so he didn't smell so bad. None of that happened, but I don't think Jesus was too fussed about that. Because he had the posture of what we now call a non-anxious presence. A non-anxious presence. 
I will put it to you that if we're going to be change makers in this world, we need to posture ourselves with a non-anxious presence. That phrase came from a, a Jewish family therapist. And he found out about this practice because when he was looking at how families worked and he saw a stressor in the family system, the way to reduce that stressor was to encourage everybody else in the family system to have a non-anxious presence because a non-anxious presence diffuses tension and stress and those kind of things. So often we're not going to bring change to situations because we're as anxious as everybody else. If we can posture ourselves with a non-anxious presence, which we can do because Christ is in us and Christ is in control, then we're going to do a much better job at being change agents, right? Jesus reclined at the table. 37, and a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. Man, this was her moment. He said I could come to him, so I'm going to go to him. He said I could give my burdens to him, and I've done that, and I, I feel so much freer. He said he'd give me rest, and, and I'm finding peace. And he's in my town. I'm going to go see him. And so she shows up and she's standing at the back and she realizes that that social etiquette that we said had to happen hadn't happened. And so she's, oh my goodness, I got to take this into my own hand. This is Jesus. He is worthy of my praise. He's changed my life. I've got to honor him appropriately. She bought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him right at his feet. Picture him lying down. And she was crying. And as the tears hit her his feet, she wiped her hair, like wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Two thoughts about this that tell us she was a changed lady. First of all, she had this little alabaster jar that she kind of wore on a necklace. This was a very precious thing because it probably contained nard, which was a very expensive uh, perfume, probably costing about uh, 300 denarii, about 300 days wages. But she kind of needed this because of the profession she was in. Because she was around lots of smelly, sweaty people. And so this little alabaster, duh, she could just pour a little bit out and splash it on herself, and it wouldn't be so unpleasant. But here we read that she breaks the alabaster jar. She breaks it. Why does she break it? Because she doesn't need it anymore. Because she's left her past behind. Even though this perfume was probably bought by some of her immoral or earnings, she can break it because she doesn't need it anymore because she's leaving her life behind. Remember last year, last week when we talked about the woman at the well who when she went back to her city, she left the bucket because she didn't need it anymore. She's changed. This is this story's equivalent of this. She didn't need the alabaster anymore. She was not going to be a prostitute anymore because she'd been changed by Jesus. And so she breaks this alabaster 
And even though Jesus wasn't anointed when he came in, she put a little bit on his head. And she lets down her hair, which was an incredibly undignified thing for a a woman, especially a woman like this, to do. But she doesn't care because all she cares about in this moment is Jesus because he's changed her life. First thing I want to say is that changed people act hospitably. Changed people act hospitably. She had no reason to be there. Everybody said, we want you on the back ends of our lives. We want you on the outskirts of who we are. But she saw that basic hospitality wasn't happening. And so she said, oh my goodness, I got to go serve. I got to make what is wrong right. Because this is Jesus, the man who's changed my life. Changed people act hospitably and give their life as an illustration. Let me say that again. As changed people, we must act hospitably to one another and we also must give our life as an illustration, as an example of who Jesus is. That's what this next section is about. The Pharisee all of a sudden is angry. He's angry. This is his moment with Jesus. He wants to check him out. He sees Jesus as a social equal, perhaps. And a prostitute comes, and a prostitute humiliates him in front of him and his friends and his family and his guests, and he's mad. But like us, when we're mad, he doesn't, own his sin, which kind of created the problem. He tries to deflect it. He tries to blame others. You guys know about that? I do because I do it. When something goes wrong, the first response is often, oh man, that was their fault. (laughs) If it's not their fault, well, it must be their fault or their fault or their fault because I don't want to own fault here. And and this reveals the state of this Pharisee, right? He has no humility to own his stuff. He's wanting to push it on other people. You know what's crazy about that? The first person he blames for his sin is Jesus. (laughs) If you're going to blame someone, Jesus probably isn't where you start. (laughs) But he says, this man who said he was a prophet, if he was a prophet would know who and what kind of woman this is, and she wouldn't touch him. It's Jesus' fault. But my sense is that argument didn't carry much weight around the table. And so he tries to deflect in another direction. He says, she's a sinner. It's her fault. He is acting selfishly. He's letting his hurt hurt other people. He's closing the door to what God wants to say to him. And so Jesus says, let me give you an illustration. He says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. 
And this was something that rabbis did. They said, you know, let's discuss questions, the deep questions of the day. And perhaps he was uh, expecting a, a riddle. That was the kind of dinner time conversation. So Simon the Pharisee, probably trying to change the subject and take the spotlight off himself that he's trying to throw on other people, says, say it, teacher, what is it? And Jesus tells this story. A creditor had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii. A denarii was about a day's wages. That's a lot of money, right? And the other owned 50. That's a lot of money too, but it's obviously not as much as the 500. Since neither of them could pay it back, the man graciously forgave them both. Which do you think would love him more? Simon gets it right, as most of us would, right? How about the one who owned 500 denario? Suppose the one who was forgiven more, he says, verse 30, 43. Jesus says, you have, you have judged correctly. That's a pretty powerful story. There's an even more powerful principle behind it. And that's that the more we realize the weight and the debt and the separation of our sin, once we realize that sin is forgiven, we have a tendency to serve Jesus more passionately and more joyfully. The problem with the Pharisee is that he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. That was manifest in the fact that he was blaming else, everyone else for the problem. Of course he wasn't going to be grateful. Of course he wasn't going to love very deeply. Of course he wasn't going to go the extra mile because he didn't think he had much to be forgiven for. Here's the deal with forgiveness. If you don't think you need forgiveness, then you can't receive much forgiveness. And if you don't receive much forgiveness, not only are you blindly still stuck in sin, but you are not very grateful. But here's this lady. She's the 500 denarii lady. And that sin has been forgiven, and so she is passionately full with joy. She has been changed by God because he's forgiven her large debt, and now she's going about changing people. Before we move on, there's just one word I want to want to pick up on. As Jesus is telling this parable, verse 42, he says this, Since they could not pay him back, he graciously forgave them both. And what's important? about that statement is not just that God forgave because we know that, but it's how God forgave. He forgave them graciously. They hadn't paid off any of that debt. He forgave them graciously just because he loved them. Did he have to forgive the debt? No. Was there a price that they were going to pay for the debt? Yes. But the owner graciously forgave them. Our debt is infinitely more than 500 denarii, right? But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we are graciously forgiven. 
You have judged correctly, he told him. 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, this is great. So he's speaking to Simon, who's over here, but he's looking at the woman over there. You see that? This is a woman who hasn't been looked at with love like Jesus is looking at her now like ever before. Turning to the woman, he said to the Simon, do you see this woman? That's a rhetorical question because the answer is clearly no. He's seen her sin. He's seen her stuff. He's seen that she's messing up his party, but he hasn't seen her heart. He hasn't seen the heart that's been changed by Jesus. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I would encourage each of us, let's not just see sinners, let's see people. Let's just not see the the sin that people commit. Let's look behind that and see the person, normally a pained person, who is sinning because they're a pained person. And let's love the, the person more than we hate the sin. He says, you see that woman? I entered your house and she gave me no water, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears. You didn't clean my feet, but she who has been forgiven much let down her hair and cleaned my feet with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. There's another little dig that Jesus is making here in the most loving way. Olive oil, that was a really cheap kind of perfume. That was the kind of stuff you get at Walmart or one of the gas station perfumes, right? Or in the, the bathroom. The, the nod that she was using, that was the expensive stuff. Not only did he not do it, but if he was going to do it, he was going to use the cheap stuff because he didn't realize how much he needed to be forgiven. 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved so much. Jesus is saying there is a direct correlation between how much you realize you've been forgiven and how much you love. You want to love more? Realize how broken you are. You want to love more? Realize the weight and the debt of your sin. You want to love more? Realize how much you've hurt people and realize how much God has dealt with that because he loves you and let that love come out of you to change people. The one who is forgiven little loves little. And Simon, that's you. Throughout the course of the Gospels, Jesus is saying everywhere, in every story, in every word, it's all about love. It's all about how well and how deeply you love those who are like you, those who aren't like you, those who are your enemies, those who persecute you. It's all about love. Simon, my friend, you haven't been changed enough by me to love well enough for me. Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. They weren't forgiven because she crashed the party and did the stuff. 
They were forgiven because she trusted Jesus. She'd come to him and laid her burdens before him, and she'd been graciously forgiven. Man, man, so often, I don't want to belabor this point, and I know time's probably running out, but so often we think that it's about doing the stuff that gives us forgiveness, right? You know, so, so many of us, in this story, if there was a party, we would go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, let me clean your feet. Let me kiss your cheek. Let me put your, your, your perfume on. Because we think that it's our works that gain us forgiveness. It's our works that gain us salvation. It's not. Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. Those who are at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this man that even forgives sins? The Pharisees always threw that argument up. But Jesus said to the woman this, your faith has saved you. It's not the stuff you did. It's your faith that has saved you. Because you have put your faith in this gracious God who forgives your debts. Our faith is in God's grace. And as we receive God's grace, verse 50, we get to go in peace. We get to go in peace. In fact, a better translation of this scripture is not go in peace. It's go into peace. Go into peace. This lady had been to a lot of places, but there wasn't a lot of peace in them. And so she meets Jesus and changes her heart. She changes her life. As she receives forgiveness graciously by faith, she goes into peace. Did that mean that her life was going to be squared away and everything was going to be fine and dandy? No way. She probably had a lot of bridges to rebuild. She had a lot of stuff to figure out. She had a lot of questions still to answer, but she was going to go into those questions and go into those situations and go into that rebuilding in peace. Because she put her faith in the one who gives her grace. Changed people Change people. Change people act hospitably and live their life as an illustration that invites people to love and peace. Changed people act hospitably as an illustration of the invitation to love and peace. We receive quite a lesson 2,000 years later from a broken, disrespected, disregarded prostitute whose life was changed by Jesus so that she could go in peace and offer that peace to other people.
The other day I was thinking about this message and the story and the whole change people, change people's thing. And to my mind came a quote that said, be the change you want to see in the world. You know that quote? And I looked it up and that comes from Gandhi. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement, be the change that you want to see in the world. The irony about Gandhi's life is that even though he understood who Jesus was, and he read the scriptures about Jesus, and he was often inspired by Jesus, he never made a commitment to follow Jesus because he saw how many of those who claimed to love Jesus lived. In fact, he famously says, I love your Christ, it's your Christians I can't stand. Change people should live changed lives that change others. Let's be the change we want to see in the world. That's good counsel. But it's not that simple. We must first be changed by Christ. And then we live our lives as an illustration and an invitation towards love and peace so that other people can be changed by him as well.